So this is the second in a series of videos that are meant to help us ponder where we're at as a church, where we're going, and how we're going to get there. In other words, our current reality, our vision, and our strategy. In in the first video, I shared a bit of my personal journey and how it impacts the church. And in this second conversation, I want to start sharing some thoughts on where we're at, our current reality, both as a church and as a culture, as a country. And, and what I'd like to do is I'd just like to start by sharing a letter that came from the Church of Iran, in essence, kind of like an epistle. Imagine Paul writing a church to the church, of, uh, a letter to the Church of America. This came from the Church of Iran to the Church of America in 2020. And if you don't know, the Church of Iran is considered by most who study these things to be the fastest growing church in the world. You, you may remember the letter. I shared it back in 2020, and this is just a portion of the letter. The writer writes these words. I can tell you firsthand after years and years of seeing the gospel take root in the Islamic Republic of Iran, the Holy Spirit will sort the secondary things out. They're important, they matter, and he'll give you the power to forgive your enemies. He can heal your land. Incredible things, he wrote, are happening in Iran to and through Iranians by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we don't have the freedom that you have in America. But I'll tell you this, I will take... I will take the Iranian Islamic regime over democratic freedom any day. And I mean that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is breathing on persecution that we're enduring as disciples of Jesus in Iran. And the gospel is sweeping through our country with more might and power than COVID-19. Iranians are going to crowd out the sea of glass, he wrote. We're going to need a lot of seats at the table at the wedding feast. We have plenty of injustice in Iran, and God sees it, and he cares, and he's dealing with it, and he will deal with it, but we are discipling for eternity. Fight the good fight, he wrote to us. Fight the good fight. So many of you are willing to die in the proverbial hill for what you believe, and I love that, but die on the right hill. There's a time and a place to invoke your constitutional rights. Paul did it, but Paul did it because he was caught in the act of spreading the gospel and he invoked his right as a means of spreading it further. Don't get distracted by social justice movements and neglect making disciples to the only one who can actually solve our problems. And don't fight so hard for your right to gather that you neglect to actually spread the gospel. Lean in. And ask the Lord what new wineskins look like for your neighborhood, your city, your state, and your country. The ability to stand alone, highly reproducible, highly obedient to Christ. These attributes are how my lead team and I discern the move of the gospel as it apprehends lives and souls in our city and in our country. We've never had the luxury of public meetings, he wrote. So we've never been able to measure growth by the number of bodies in a room. We've never been able to follow conventional strategies for church planting. Consequently, we've had to get creative, go deep into scripture to study how Jesus made disciples, and more than that, how he made disciples who make disciples. Hear that again? Is it my word saying that? How he made disciples who make disciples. Your models and your strategies rely entirely on Sunday mornings. And so what do you do when you lose your main and your plane? And could it be that God has a purpose for pushing everyone out of the building for a year? What if God wants to bring so many Americans into the kingdom? We literally don't have space for them in our buildings. What if you need to craft infrastructure to hold that kind of holy movement? We all want revival, he writes. 
But let me ask you this, what would you do if revival hit your town tonight? Does your church know how to respond to 3,000 messy snot-nosed newborn disciples all at once? Or 500 new believers? Do you know how to handle that kind of intake? Let's be honest, for the sake of moving forward well, you probably don't. And neither did the disciples. But they spent a few years following Jesus around, watching his strategies, watching how he responded to people suddenly confronted with her in awe of the beauty of his name. They watched how heavily he relied on his father. They saw when he made counterintuitive decisions of violated convention, and they learned how to discern where the wind of the Spirit was blowing and respond accordingly and immediately. These are not ordinary days. God is doing a new thing. And we need to respond well. He will not wait for us at the platform while we deliberate whether or not we'll get on the train. Life will not return to business as usual in 2021. (laughs) Gather with your leaders fast and pray. Don't figure this out in the flesh. Don't white knuckle your old wineskins just because you like them and you're uncomfortable with new ones. Make disciples who make disciples on a Thursday night and a Monday afternoon and a Saturday morning. People set free. By the power of the Holy Spirit through the death and resurrection of Jesus are the freest people alive today. Ministry and making disciples led by the spirit of freedom is incredibly simple and it's marked by these three characteristics. It can stand alone. It's highly reproducible and it's highly, highly obedient to Christ. No excuses, no reserves, no regrets. I believe God is preparing the earth for the return of Jesus, he closed by saying, And I'm convinced the American church has a critical role to play in it. You lead the nations. Let go of the old wine. Let him pour the new stuff out because the faster you receive it, the sooner you can pass it around the table to the rest of us. Lean in. We love you. We're cheering you on. You know, I I share what is happening in Iran, but, but not just... Iran, disciple-making movements, rapid church growth, transformation. This is happening all around the globe. In Iran, in Afghanistan, in Asia, India, China, Nepal, a number of countries in Africa. And I I know what some of you are thinking. Now, wait a minute, Dan. You said you're going to talk about our current reality. This isn't our current reality, right? Right. (laughs) I just wanted to give some contrast because sometimes we begin to think that our current reality is normal reality. Even even if we long for what happened to the church in Acts, sometimes we begin to think that, that that was then and this is now. But it's not. It's also now. Not just then. In places around the world, it's now. In America, not so much. So in this video, I, I just want to give you some quick bullet points to paint a broad picture of the church in America. We, we could go way more in depth and even more broad, but I, I just want to give us a beginning picture. So, so number one, let me start with behaviors. Are Christians any different from non-Christians? You've heard this one before, probably. In, in a Barna study released a few years ago, they found that most of the lifestyle activities of born-again Christians was statistically the equivalent of those who are not born-again Christians. Christians were just as likely to gamble or visit a pornographic website. We were just as likely to take something that didn't belong to us, just as likely to consult a psychic, and just as likely to get drunk. We're just as likely to get in a fight, abuse someone, or take drugs. We're just as likely to have lied or said something mean behind someone else's back. We were no more generous than the people around us. You know where we were different? We flipped people off less often, and we were less likely to have bought a lottery ticket in the last 30 days. Number two, less people connected to church than ever before. 
According to another Barna study, about 25% of the adults in the U.S. have a significant commitment and connection to a church. Only 25%. That's less than it has been for decades. I'm not talking about all those who self-identify as Christians or even those who show up every once in a while. 25% have a significant commitment and connection. For decades, we've been on the decline in this area. Same study, just 16% of non-Christians in their teens and 20s have a good impression of Christianity. I mean, let me take it a little closer to home when it comes to evangelicals, our stream, our our breed of Christians. Only 3% of non-Christians in their teens and 20s have a favorable view. 97% of the next generation have a negative view of Christianity. The three top criticisms were that we're too judgmental, too hypocritical, and too political. A recent study by the Pew Research Center found that only about one quarter of millennials are connected to a church. Now, I'm not even talking significant commitment now, just connected. (laughs) There's a church that they call their church, just a quarter. The the older millennials are nearing 40 and and they're not returning to the church. According to statistics in Tom Rainer's new book, Essential Church, 70% of youth will leave church by the time they're 22. Again, according to Barna, another study, 80% will be disengaged by the time they're 29. (laughs) And another study suggests the following current trends, only 4% of today's youth will become fully committed followers of Jesus. Number four, according to a study done by the American Bible Society, in 2022, Bible engagement tanked. In this last year, in the last 12 months, it tanked. It literally tanked. 67% of the people in our country read the Bible less than three to four times a year. A year. 67%. In this last year, 22 million people, just in this last 12 months, 22 million people who are at least a little bit engaged with the Bible, totally disengaged. Totally disengaged. Not not even three to four times a year. Those who are disengaged rose from 100 million to 145 million. And those who are engaged in the Bible, in other words, they read it and it matters to them. It shapes how they live. That dropped 25% to 49 million people. That's about 19% of the American population. Fifth bullet point. According to a Pew Research study in 1972, about 90% You may remember those days, some of you. In 1972, about 90% of the people in America self-identified as Christian. In 2020, it was 62%. In 2070, it's projected to be between a low of 35% and a high of 46%. And finally, just even what has happened during COVID. I remember listening to Ed Stetzer actually give a presentation at Calvary on evangelism and outreach. And he said, you know what, you could kind of divide your church into thirds. And there's that third that sits in the in the very front of the church on Sunday morning in a, in a Baptist church, that maybe the ones who sit in the very back, they get there early enough to sit in the back. But he said that third that's really committed, they're doing stuff, they're giving, they're super committed. The, he, he said now post-COVID in 2021, 2022, um, that third is even more highly committed. In fact, they're in danger probably of being burnt out. They're, they're doing everything they can to see the church be who the church needs to be. And he said, then there's a, a middle third of people who, 
you know, pre-COVID, and they were the ones who, who came, you know, more more than just Easter and Christmas. They they were coming once or twice a month, and and maybe they were given a little bit, and and, and they were connected. They were serving at church on Sunday morning. He said that third, they're, they're kind of wavering. Some of them are back, some of them are not. Some of them are less committed. Some of them are wondering. And then he said, "There's that final third." He said, "The final third are the the ones who come once in a while. They come Christmas and and Easter and." And uh, maybe maybe once in a while when they feel like they have the need. And he said, but the thing is about that third, that's where the, the church has primarily gotten their conversion growth. Those are the people who have made some decision at some point in, in these last years to become Christians. But he said, that, that third, they're gone and they're not coming back. That's part of the current reality of the church. I, I could give you more, but that's part of our current reality. And as a result of my personal journey and convictions about the need in our country and culture for a new kind of church, this drives me and it should shape our future. On the next video, we'll chat more about our current reality. It's not all bad. And even in the midst of the bad, we have an amazingly good and powerful God. Jesus loves his church. I'm telling you, he has not given up on his church. But like I've said before, we can't truly pray for revival if we don't believe something has died. Before I pray, let me just give you another assignment. If you need to, listen to this talk one more time and just write down or hang on to the the one stat or bullet point or story or maybe something from the letter from Iran or or the issue that concerns you most about the church today. And, and, And you can even make it very specific about Calvary. And then take the time in the coming days to ask Jesus to bring his grace and resurrection power to bear there in that issue, that problem. Pray for revival. Father, thank you for each and every person listening to this video. God, I thank you for your love for us, and you love us more than we can imagine. And Jesus, you said that you will build your church, and when you build your church, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. God, I thank you for what you're doing in Iran and in other parts around the world. And and we ask God, would you do it here? Would you revive your church in America, in, in Central PA? And would you do it here? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.